Yeah. 
This morning we are launching a new sermon series uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We've entitled it Jesus and Human Flourishing. And so as we launch this first week here, I want to ask a question. What is your vision of the good life? If you could imagine life at its best, what would it be? And in your vision of the good life, uh, what kind of person would you be? It's interesting. I want that question to kind of marinate with you for just a minute. Even as I ask this, I think of how, you know, the American dream definition of the good life doesn't really ask the question of what kind of person you would be. The American, you know, version of the good life is all the stuff that you would have and all the unlimited, you know, vacation experiences and your own private island kind of thing. Uh, But our culture doesn't really ask the question much of what kind of person would you be um, in your vision of the good life? There's lots of competing visions out there, right? Maybe you're hearing that and you're yourself thinking, well, a winning lottery ticket would be nice for that vision of my good life, right? Um, but the most, I, I think, though, this is maybe one of the most important questions for the church, especially in modern times right now, to ask, what is the vision of the good life? What is the church's vision of the good life? The good news, thankfully, part of the good news, part of the gospel here, part of the good news, the whole message of, the, of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus told us a vision of the good life. He actually defined it for us here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now his vision, as we will see this morning and throughout the next few months between now and Easter, is his vision of the good life really primarily deals with what kind of person you are. Now this isn't a law-based kind of thing of Jesus saying, here's your to-do list, Uh, get to work, and if you get it all done, then everything's a-okay it's actually harder than that. I remember one of my um, old mentors said that, you know, it'd be easier if Jesus gave us a checklist, right? But he addresses uh, things like our motivations. He addresses uh, things at much deeper heart levels that is uh, very much more difficult than just giving you a tablet of stone and saying, obey these certain laws. Jesus addresses us at the deepest level and the very things that make us who we are. Our constitution day to day, our emotional state, our motivations, our posture towards others. It is a vision, if you will, but not an unreachable vision. Jesus, in this famous sermon, uh, he has a message for us. He says, if you want to follow me, you're going to flourish. But for the people that are in my kingdom... Uh, I, I, I have a certain vision of what kind of person is in my kingdom, what kind of person who will flourish in my new kingdom. Now, we can argue, I mean, really for any generation, but I guess everybody would say, especially our times, but really, especially our times right now in 2021, America needs a flourishing church. I think, and I can argue for a different time, maybe that I think we're entering a new dark age, a time when some of the most basic and cultural institutions that are supposed to provide glimmers of an orderly life, I do believe we're going to see them rapidly diminish and vanish. 
And we need to look at our own congregation, look at ourselves, the things that we're involved in, the places that we have influence, says there's a church in our locality here in Wilmington and our surrounding areas and our own church congregation and say, are we going to be swept away by it all? Are we going to buy into these other competing visions of the good life that will actually only destroy? Or are we going to look at how Jesus defined the good life, strengthen ourselves around Christ our Lord, and as the world gets darker, we get brighter, and when those who get beat up and ran over and wounded from this broken world and their participation of society, and they start looking for hope somewhere else, because that day will come much quicker than I think we imagine, that they will find a church flourishing, full of Jesus followers who are strong in him, faithful in him, and loving him with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, I've called this sermon series, Jesus and Human Flourishing, and I want to begin working on this Sermon on the Mount. And so let's begin in Matthew chapter 5, verse, beginning in verse 1. This is a word of the Lord. It's just awkward to preach to an empty room and everybody sat really far away from me. So um, I, that's okay. Maybe I smell this morning. Verse five, chapter five, verse one. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. There we go. <laughs> Thanks. People just scooted in, that's funny. All right. Um, to set this up, as he saw the crowds, Uh, Jesus just finished in chapter 4, if you read the paragraph before, he just healed a massive crowd of people, and they were sick, they were diseased, they were full of illnesses. In essence, if you want to, you know, put this in in picture form in your mind, it would be like getting, you know, uh, St. Francis Hospital down the street here and just emptying it out of all of its, you know, residents, and Jesus just heals them all, Right? And that's kind of the the crowd that is listening to him in this sermon, people who were just healed of all their infirmities and sicknesses. These people came um, from Jerusalem, from Judea, from the surrounding Gentile and Roman regions. I mean, you got to imagine this crowd being a ragtag bunch of busted up, rejected, and hurt people from from society. Because if you were sick in those days, there was no hospital to go to. They just said, get out of town. Move, go. You couldn't get a job. You couldn't provide for yourself. Um, it was a hard time to be sick. And so these are people that were really just, uh, they were tired. They were beat up from life. And it is this crowd that Jesus gathers as he begins this famous sermon on the mount. And almost like a new Moses here is some of the imagery of, of, of going up the mountain like Moses. Although Moses received the law from God, here Jesus is going to preach with the authority of the lawgiver himself. And he opens up in verse 2. He says, he opened his mouth, familiar phrase of, of rabbis teaching in this day. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my accounts. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That is the word of the Lord. Now, to understand what we just read here, we need to first define the word blessed. It's a Greek word that is really hard. There's things always will be lost in translation, and it's really tough to get this word into English. Uh, traditionally, in English translations, I, I, I think beginning with the King James, this is why almost all of them, because this is a very famous part of the Bible. So it gets tough when you're making like updated and new translations based on recent research and understanding to, to change these really famous passages because this is so familiar to us. This sermon is so familiar. But the word blessed um, really could be translated along the lines of uh, also happy or to receive a blessing, or uh, to flourish, or congratulations. Uh, Blessed can certainly kind of be mixed in all of those various definitions of this word. Now, happiness, or even blessing, I'm afraid, is a little confused in our current American culture. If I went out on the street or through my neighborhood and knocked on the door and said, hey, what does it mean to be blessed? I don't know what answers I would get, but it'd be probably different per house and per family, right? Because uh, the visions of what it means to be blessed in our nation are many and very diverse. So that is why it is hard to perfectly get this word in English. Although I agree with one Testament scholar, uh, New Testament scholar, Jonathan Pennington, he argues the word flourishing can do. And that's what I'm going to use this morning as we work through it. Because Jesus in these Beatitudes, we can sometimes read these and think that he's giving commands out. Like, you want to flourish and be blessed? So go be poor. Go. And that's not really what he's doing. Rather, he's talking about the disposition of his people. The very disposition they should have as followers in his kingdom. The very essence of who they are as a person when they place Jesus at the forefront of their heart, their mind, their soul, and strength. This is not really some kind of to-do list, but a vision, a tangible, achievable vision, but a vision for what kind of person Jesus' followers will or should be. And lastly, as we work through this, to flourish as a human being according to this whole entire sermon, it's going to force us to face and maybe even redefine three of the most important relationships in our life. Our relationship with God, with others, and even ourselves. Jesus here confronts all of these and begins reworking them. So, with all that in mind, Let's try to briefly walk through these. And I'm going to use the word flourishing as we read through them again. So flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now again, he's not saying go and be poor and you'll be blessed. But knowing his crowd, they were probably already poor, most of them, having spent much of their life um, beneath their diseases and sicknesses and, and infirmities and physical ailments. And here begins the the vision for this new orientation towards God, others, and self. Because these people, they knew who they were. They were acutely aware of their poverty, probably literal, but also spiritual. They knew they were needy coming from their previous state. They knew they were impoverished. 
And when you become aware of your own impoverishment, you become aware of your need and your lack of self-sufficiency, which begs the question to Jesus' followers, is he just an addition to your life? Are you aware of your lack of self-sufficiency? To receive the blessing of the kingdom requires you living as if you need King Jesus because you know the depths of your spiritual poverty without him. He is not an addition to your life. He is your life. He is not something we pick up when we want him and drop him off, when we no longer feel we need him. I can't tell you how many times I have sat with people in pastoral counseling situations. They say, my life is a wreck. It's a wreck. I was like, great, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And their life gets back together and poof, they're gone. As if when things are good, they don't need him. But when things are bad, oh, I need Jesus. No, we need him every day, every hour, as a famous hymn says. That is the foundation for all of our Christian life. And that is what it means to flourish in Jesus' kingdom. Blessed are those, flourishing are those who are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He continues on. Flourishing are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, what are we mourning exactly? This original audience, most of whom were Jewish, but even some who were also Gentile from the Gentile regions and Roman regions around, they all were very aware of the heavy hand of Roman rule and the unsettled peace that was due to military intimidations and threats. So broadly speaking, by looking at the Old Testament prophets and Psalms, especially scriptures that this Um, a generation of Jews really clung to in the Roman Israel, Isaiah 61 especially, that served as as a longing and hope of Israel because everyone was looking for justice from God, for the oppression that surrounded them. They knew that Israel's national state was nothing of what it was in the previous kingdom years. And they mourned, as Isaiah 61 says, and they longed for the day that God would return and reset things and make them new and install his kingdom as he promised he would. They mourned as even though they lived in the promised land, they still felt as if they were in exile. And Jesus says, good. You're aware that things are not what they should be and you're in mourning. I'm going to give you hope. If you're in mourning, longing for these things to be made right, you will be comforted. Now, who wants everything to be made right? Who has looked over the scope of our nation as of recent and mourned over the chaos that has surrounded us? Who looks even at the city of Wilmington and sees its poverty and its violence and mourned? Now, we can be comforted, church, because we know the promises that he will one day return to make all things right. And as you mourn and you ask him to come to do so, you should find yourself humbled before him Because even you can look at your own self and realize, I am still in need of Jesus myself. My neighbors are in need of Jesus. This city, this state, this nation is in need of Jesus. In this unlikely place of mourning and the humility that comes from it is an unlikely place to receive a blessing from God or to be said that you are in flourishing if you find yourself there. But in that weak moment, once again, only Jesus can fill the comfort that you are looking for. And that is why you flourish there. 
I want to continue on. I'm going to throw the next three together. Flourishing are the meek, or gentle is the word really, is used elsewhere in the New Testament. For they shall inherit the earth. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Flourishing are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Gentleness, hunger, and thirsting for righteousness or justice as it could be translated. And flourishing are the merciful. I want to stop and just say something. This list Jesus is walking us through sounds an awful lot like a bunch of wimpy, weak, beat up people who were soft-spoken and probably don't want to, you know, put up a fight if they were pushed around. This sounds weak. I don't want to... Um, I'm going to stop and really walk through this, and I want to kind of back up and look broad speaking here for a minute. John told us something very important about our Lord Jesus in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that he was full of grace and truth. He was found flipping tables in the temple, and afterwards was found gently speaking with a woman who was sleeping around with many different people, uh, sitting with her at Jacob's well gently confronting her, gently confronting her sin, and gently confronting where her hopes lay in life. Now, to be meek or gentle does not mean that when the time comes, and time may call for you to flip a table in the name of Jesus, that you refrain. No, it means that you carefully approach that table before you flip it. You know exactly what you're doing, why you are doing it, if such a rough and dramatic action is best for those around, and when it's time for you to stop, you stop. It means that your hunger for righteousness and your thirst for justice in your life is all-consuming, and it guides you in every step of your life and every step of the way that you are allowing and asking the Spirit of God to guide you and to lead you and even extend to you the prophetic insight necessary to know how to treat and to speak to others, when to confront others with firmness or with gentleness and with the mercy of Christ guiding you in both. Now, I want you to see that these Beatitudes are not a to-do list as much as a way of life. Now, I know I'm preaching to a camera, so if you're asleep, try to wake up here. Wilmington needs bold Christians. Our nation needs bold Christians. I'm not speaking, though, of the American way of boldness, of arrogance, of pride in your own clothes take on the world and to tell others how much of an idiot they are for not agreeing with you. I'm speaking, rather, of the Jesus way of boldness which flips much of that upside down. Gentleness marks us as Jesus followers. Meekness, humility. We are to be known for being hungry and thirsty for righteousness and for justice and for being merciful to our neighbors. And this is far from developing weak Christians, but rather controlled Christians, controlled by our love for God and neighbor. We become controlled in our truth-telling with gentleness. We are driven by this hunger for the righteousness of Christ, and we extend our hunger for it with mercy. We don't emotionally respond to things, but rather we see human beings who were in need of Christ, and we see ourselves who also need Jesus, and in a spirit-filled control manner, we go about it with gentleness and meekness of spirit. Now, I want to be honest. Some of you right now 
are being controlled by our media and they're letting your, the media control your outlook on the world. I get your emails, you know who you are. <laughs> I need you guys to understand this, all right? These images that we receive, they're very powerful. Our current media is very powerful in our life, but short 30 second videos and clickbait articles are no way to engage this world and come to an understanding of things. Most of our news companies are just advertising companies making money from your clicks, and rage is the best way to get you to click or watch their stuff. Now, I've seen Jesus followers live their lives as of recent, and this pandemic especially, because it's so easy to just to live their lives online like this. And the result is this harsh edge that has come to so many, just meanness, no gentleness or meekness to be found. And rather than a hunger for righteousness, they have developed an almost violent or militant hunger for a distorted view of partisan righteousness. But all the while, what about your neighbor? What about this broken city that our church is in? What about local ministry that as a Jesus follower, you can actually play a part in? You see, Jesus is bringing the hammer of truth to us here in order that we as Christians may be Christians of action just like Jesus was. See, Jesus didn't live his life in a corner being gentle and meek and hungry for righteousness while twiddling his thumbs. No, just like when he was giving this sermon, he was out there in the crowds ministering to them among the people serving and loving his community. The world does not need another angry tweet from a Jesus follower. They need to actually experience the gentleness and the meekness that comes from Christians who are authentically hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of Christ to fill their communities. And here's a hard word for us as a church. Jesus expects this of his followers. Not in some legalistic way where he's just going to pound the Bible over our heads. No, but he is casting this vision of expectation for us to fill that's why the Spirit was given to us. And some of you right now might even need to repent. Some of you right now, right now might need to repent of your lack of love for neighbor, of your lack of gentleness and meekness and allowing other institutions to define righteousness for you rather than Christ, rather than his church and his scriptures to define righteousness for you. Maybe even in your living room, you need to get down on your knees and ask Jesus for the grace of forgiveness and to be in mourning over how far that some of us have been pushed in this area. We need Jesus. I want to move on. Flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, this is not talking so much about uh, sexual purity as it is purity of oneness of soul and oneness of mind. James, in his book, he speaks of it as double-mindedness, which uh, gives birth to instability in all of its ways. James 1, verse 8. The Proverbs say, gracious words are pure words because they are pure like God is pure. This is a call for you and I to be single-minded in the devotion of our heart and not divided up. Now, to flourish in Christ is to walk in purity, to be a person who is not conflicted with their allegiances. If certain things or institutions or people or desires receive your primary allegiance in life, 
Jesus will remain a bit cloudy in your sight. He will always seem to you as just almost in reach, but not quite. Even if you know him and you allow these other things to seep into your heart and grab your allegiance, God will continually feel that even though he is near, that he is just almost just quite out of reach. Jesus is pure and his followers are pure. It's a call in his kingdom to love him with all of our minds, all of our soul, and all of our strength in a manner that is undivided. He then continues on, flourishing are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I'm going to read you a verse to confuse you this morning, because I love confusing people with the Bible. Sometimes when we get confused by the Bible, it shows us that uh, God is just uh, much bigger than our finite mind. So here's a verse to confuse you after reading about, um, you know, flourishing other peacemakers. Same book, a few chapters later, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this, Don't think I came to bring peace to the earth. No, I've come to bring a sword. Okay, Jesus, so which is it here, right? You just told us that blessed are the peacemakers, but you came bringing swords and not peace. How are we to understand these things and wrestle with these things? We just talked about Jesus flipping tables, and I left out the part where he made a whip. Right, And he didn't just make a whip that morning. It takes a couple of weeks to make a whip. He, he actually made a whip and was whipping people while flipping tables. That doesn't sound very peaceful here. Now, I want to read some more scriptures. Um, uh, the scripture is very clear in the New Testament about peacemaking and that uh, we are commanded and told to be peacemakers. Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace with all men. Moves on and says, live at peace with everyone. Never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. But as for you, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's a little bit of a paraphrase in Romans 12, 18 through 22. Seek peace and pursue it, says Peter, 1 Peter 3, verse 11. I could give you so many more. We have a responsibility as Christians to be people of peace. Yet there is another side to the coin, and it is this. Wherever Jesus enters, I want you to walk and carefully you know, listen to this. Wherever Jesus enters and shows up, often his gospel will create divisions and even create a lack of peace. As Christians, but, uh, as Christians our thrill does not come from causing division. That's the way of the world. Many of you have experienced the pain of family rejection upon your conversion to Christianity. And you know that the lack of peace on that level is far from thrilling, but it is very painful. We are always aiming to be people of peace, to speak the truth, and let the chips fall where they may in the name of Jesus. And that nuanced place is where we're going to find flourishing because once again, it is all about Jesus. But what about our day-to-day situations? Questions of self-defense when violence comes your way. I want to share you a funny story from my, um, I guess, my teenage years. Um, one time, the only time, I mean, aside from my brother, I guess, uh, I punched a kid just once in my life in high school. Uh, we were playing dodgeball, and it was chaos everywhere, and I stood up and uh, was hit right in the face, busted my glasses, split my nose open, blood was all over my face. And my instant reaction in my tall 155 lanky or pound lanky frame that I'm just not a fighter and never threw a punch before other than my brothers when we were kids, right? I just rear back and hit the guy. 
I took him down, all right? Uh, only I quickly learned that after this whole scenario and the crowd gathered and the whole high school thing happened, right? That um, I just happened to step in the middle of this like mini game of two friends that were throwing. I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The guy had nothing against me. It was a complete mistake. But rather than stopping after I got hit and the you know blood, it was painful. You know, it was kind of a shock thing. It was just boom. It was just my first reaction. I could have stopped and said, "Hey, what was did you mean to do that? Like, it's not cool." Um, I just swung right. But peacemaking calls for questions and maybe even clarity before violence. Violence sometimes, at the very last resort, might be necessary to bring peace, right? Um, it, it, it might, at the absolute last resort, be what needs to be done to bring peace. There's a whole theory behind this. Look it up if you want to nerd out. It's called the, war, the Just War Theory. St. Augustine came up with it, and we, the church has been wrestling with it for a long time. It's, it's a complicated question, but I think, generally speaking, our disposition towards violence must be this. It must be abhorred and regretted wherever it is found, whether violence is found on the steps of our capital or for marches for racial equality that erupt into violence, Scripture guides us on this one. Wherever violence is to be found, it is to be abhorred. Christians, we are to be people of peace. And in that, we will find flourishing. That is what our world needs right now. I want to end with these verses as we on the back end of our sermon here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed or flourishing are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we follow and chase after Jesus, as we aim to, by the help of his spirit, to be people of the Beatitudes, flourishing in the kingdom of Jesus, we realize, if you're not already feeling this, right? I know the Beatitudes kind of feels like a, like a buckshot of just random kind of things that are kind of connected here, but they are a little scattered, right? And we've done our best, I think, to walk through them. This is hard stuff. It takes thinking. It takes prayer. It's going to take some nuanced thinking and looking continually at the life of Jesus and say, well, how did he respond? And most often in all these circumstances, with his omniscient you know, knowledge here, he, he knew the person he was talking to fully. He knew how to respond. We don't lack that kind of omniscience, right? And so we pray for the Spirit's wisdom to know how to interact in all these situations in day-to-day life. It's a tough and hard calling, this calling of being a Jesus follower of a Christian right? It's, it's constant situational awareness, constant grappling with the scripture to guide us as a compass, right? And we're going to often find as we do that, right, that we're, our ways as Christians will be upside down from the world's. And it may even rub uh, and create some friction with our nation's worldview and our cultural beliefs and some of the core of Christianity, especially things like our understanding of biblical marriage, understanding of uh, biblical sexuality, uh, this will, not may, it will now and, and soon years uh, create some intense pressure for us as a Christian church. But we are still not to seek out that pressure. That's called having a martyr complex. 
Sometimes uh, I, I've seen Christians in parts of the church almost feel like a vindication when persecution comes. Like, yes, finally, right? As if suddenly now our words have more meaning because somebody attacked us in the name of Jesus. Now, Jesus does call us to rejoice in these moments. He even says the word blessed here, flourishing. We rejoice, as the book of Acts says, as the apostles did, to be counted worthy if that day were to, be come, to come to us. To be counted worthy to suffer in the name of Jesus when we are actually suffering from it and not suffering from being idiots. There's a difference. And sometimes you've got to really think about that, right? Um, receiving an angry tweet back online is not Christian persecution, all right? We need to be careful to really define what true persecution is. When we are told that we cannot speak in the name of Jesus any longer, when we are told that everyone else can gather in large crowds, but you, you want to talk about Jesus and, and worship Jesus and, and talk about the Bible? No, if that day comes, yes, we are being persecuted. As some people, it happens today, they lose jobs because they believe in biblical marriage. They believe homosexuality to be a sin. Or even the school they went to holds to those things, and then they lost their job because they hold that degree from that one particular school. That's happening today, and yes, rejoice that God has counted you worthy of it, but don't wear it as a badge of honor, some kind of greater than Christianity, right? Or some sort of achievement in life. Quietly rejoice in the closet of prayer. That's the way of gentleness and meekness and humility. Let's keep our eyes and heart on Jesus as we walk through these interesting times that we live in, and let's let the chips fall where they may. I need to wrap this up. I know the worship team is here, and they're going to close with a song, so I'm going to call them to come back up. The Beatitudes are, they are hard to preach. We covered a lot of ground this morning. We touched on many corners of our Christian life. But this sermon is going to serve as kind of the foundation of the series that is ahead. All that follows in the Sermon on the Mount is going to get more detailed in all of these areas. The, the heart behind why I'm talking about this specific sermon is really a pastoral heart. Our nation needs wise Christians walking in the ways of Christ. And not just walking in the ways of Christ, but flourishing in the ways of Christ. And that is what I'm going to leave you with. If at any point this morning you have felt especially convicted by something you've heard, I really encourage you, don't be afraid of dropping on your knees, even right now in your living room, and repenting and praying, right? In these challenging times, the call is that we may flourish in Christ. And I pray that Emmanuel, in our area, in our local presence here in Wilmington, that we may do so together. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for just your teaching. It, it truly is amazing. And as the Sermon on the Mount ends with the phrase that, that people were just blown away with the authority that you spoke. Because, Lord, you weren't like Moses who had to receive the law from God. You are God in the flesh, and you gave it with the authority that only comes from God. And I pray that as Christians, Lord, that we could sit by your feet the next few months and try to absorb all of this and pray through it and say, Jesus, by the guiding of your Holy Spirit, would you empower us to flourish in you? Would you empower us to be a church that is just um, uh, uh, walking in your ways, Lord? May you be our all in all, Lord. May we de be dependent on you for all things, Jesus, in the life of Emmanuel Church and in our family's life. 
We love you. We pray this in your wonderful and holy and righteous name. Amen.